Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. don't even know where to begin with, with Chelsea. I think it's the, the perfect appointment for the squad they've got at their disposal. I think it's a great job for Sean Dyche to get. I think the biggest surprise was not having a direct replacement to come in for him. Uh, I think we all expected that. Their spend this window makes Roman look like um, like quite a, a miserly figure in, uh, in, the, in the boardroom. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. I'm Dan Bardell and this is the Weekend Preview. Coming up, we're going to look ahead to Sean Dyche beginning his reign at Everton as Arsenal head to Goodison Park. Newcastle take on West Ham and Manchester City begin life without Jao Cancelo, away to Tottenham who are themselves without Antonio Conte. That's all to come here on the Weekend Preview. Before we get into the action, the January transfer window slams shut this week. I'm going to ask you each who you think were the winners and who you think were the losers from January. Rich, I'm going to come to you first. Your winner and your loser, please. Um, My winner, I'm going to go with Arsenal. Getting in the likes of Trossard and Jorginho, you know, two proven Premier League players. Players who've excelled at this level. Uh, You know, Trossard gives them flexibility and versatility. You can play out wide. You can play wing back as well. You can also play through the middle. And 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 you know we all know Jorginho's quality on the ball, especially you know when Arsenal trying to see out games as well. And the losers, you know, it's not looking good up at Merseyside, is it? Um, you know, Liverpool didn't really strengthen, but I mean, of course, Everton. You have to look at them because you know, okay, they got a new manager in, but no new signings. Looking very, very, very bleak up there, and you know, really missed a big opportunity to freshen things up. So um, yeah, things are not looking great for them at all. So my winners are Arsenal, and my losers are Everton. Hard to disagree with either of those answers. To be honest, did see on the Athletic this morning that Andre Ayew may well end up in Merseyside at Everton. Steve, do you disagree with Rich? No, like him, I had those two written down, but I just think uh, I mentioned Brighton for keeping Casado and having all their staff picked, whether it be on the pitch or off the pitch. They bought in, what, three teenagers. They're bound to be worth £100 million in about about two years' time. So it's just them, just for being a a really well-run club. And I'm just interested to see how those new signings just... uh, progress whether they go out on loan and or, 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 or hit the Premier League it's just a, it's just a, a very good football club isn't it yeah sad to say we'll be talking about those players this time next year I suspect George finally I'll come to you are you deviating from the other two no my, my winners of the summer window Everton I think have to be the losers of this window <laughs> but I, I still do think that under a, a now very capable manager we'll probably look back on Everton's summer business as being no better George let, let, let it go George no chance. No chance. You've it's got to let that squad. go. It's a mid-table squad. I'm telling you, you'll see what Daishi does with it. We'll talk about it later. In terms of, of winners, I mean, I, I do think 
there's a fair chance that at least one and maybe both of these teams will be playing in the championship next season. And I'm not going to pretend to know a great deal, but but people who know their onions about European football seem to think that the business Southampton have done and the business of Bournemouth has been has been pretty good in terms of signing very promising young players. Um, Sulemana coming in from Wren at Southampton is seemingly a, a really good prospect. And then uh, with Bournemouth as well, you know, who look like they need an injection of some quality at this stage. Um, the centre-back from Kiev, uh, Zab- Zabarini, Antoine Semenyo, a player I know very well from Bristol City, is a really exciting prospect too. So it, it may not be enough to save them, but in terms of, of long-term planning, it feels like two clubs who, rather than doing what we see a lot of teams who are threatened about going out of the Premier League do and, and spend big money on older players in a desperate attempt to stay up, they're, they're doing it right and getting in young players who, if they do go down, will be top talents to try and get them back up into the, the top flight next season. Yeah, I spoke to a member of the Bournemouth coaching staff on deadline day and he was very excited about the centre-back, the Ukrainian centre-back, who mm. I'm not even going to try and pronounce his name. Well, because I butchered it. No, I thought you did all right. <laughs> I thought you did all right. <laughs> to be honest, I've no idea whether, whether it's wrong or right, to be perfectly honest, but they're very ex- very excited about him. He sounds like he's, he's some prospect and has got a lot of experience, especially in Europe already. So it'll be interesting to see how Bournemouth and Southampton's new boys get on. The transfer window shut, as I just mentioned. It's only right we start with Chelsea against Fulham, which is Friday at 8 o'clock. George, I don't even know where to begin with, with Chelsea. We could we could do a whole podcast just talking about deadline day. We could do about 10 podcasts talking about them in the January transfer window <laughs> in general. It's absolutely crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, we're seeing so many viral tweets going around saying how Chelsea spent more in this window than teams in, in La Liga, um, Syria. Liga uh, and the Bundesliga combined and the rest of it you know they've broken all kinds of records double the, the total spend in one window from any team as well um, and when we were talking about who was the winner and the loser of the window I was kind of half tempted to bring up Chelsea in terms of being the winners but you, but you just can't really because of the amount of that they've spent because you've got to look at this as being value for money I, I personally think that when you've got a club like Chelsea with with a huge wealth who are quite clearly gaming the system in terms of the amortisation of, of, of value of players by offering these long-term contracts. If they can afford it, then fair play to them. I, I think if Enzo Fernandez goes on and wins two Ballon d'Ors in his career, no one's going to look back at the eye-watering fee they paid for someone who's only played half a season of football in in um, in, in Europe. And then the other players they brought in, they're all of, of really good ages. They're all players who have are up and coming and would be you know, would be seen as being a great acquisition for basically any elite club in in world football. It's just the price tag that, that has people getting getting a bit concerned. So, yeah, I mean, it's I never see anything like this. I think uh, Todd Bowley's certainly shown his hand now to be someone who's willing to invest in in the, in the football side of things. And the end of the Roman Abramovich era, their spend this window makes Roman look like um, like quite a, a miserly figure in in the in the boardroom. Yeah, someone who's not used to spending money, Steve Freith. Is it? Is it? What is it? I, I don't know what to make of it. I change my mind daily on what what I think of this Chelsea transfer window. Some days I think this is this is actually going to turn out to be really clever. Obviously, that the contract situations that they've got going on with the players as well. Other days I think this is absolute madness. What they what they're doing to football is it? Is it, is it somewhere in the middle? What, what do you make of it? I don't mind spending money, Dan, as long as it's on expenses. <laughs> yeah. I have I bought you a drink in the past. Oh, Chelsea, yeah, true, like to true. drink. Uh, I'm like you. I, I chop and change my mind, and I just look at it as a. From a betting point of view, I see a side that are eight to one to finish in the top four, which is a huge price. Let's not forget the start of the season. They were almost that price to win the Premier League, not just to finish in the top four. They were, they were shorter than 10 to one on to finish in the top four. It ain't going to happen. You know, all this money that they've spent, really, you know, for, well, the odds suggest that it's not going to happen. 
or it's going to take a bit of a shot for it too. And you see all these these players coming from a Premier League brand point of view. It's absolutely fantastic, isn't it? I think we're all excited to see how how they do. Enzo Fernandez was uh, thirty three to one young player of the year. Oh, sorry, young player of the World Cup. Quite a few people about that before the tournament started, and he went on to to have a decent tournament. I think we're excited about uh, you know Mudrick as well. Just a, a penny for the thoughts of 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 Graham Potter, really. I think he might need to be more Harry Potter to try and get to work his magic to get them in the top four. And I don't envy him one little bit, Dan, on uh, on picking the side, particularly against Fulham on Friday night. No, I mean, no Jao Felix, of course, because he was sent off in the return fixture of this game. Can it be a return fixture when you... When it's reverse, first? isn't it? I don't know. Reverse fixture, that's, that's it, what yeah. I'm looking for. Felix obviously got sent off against Fulham, so he's still missing now to play Fulham again, which is also very strange. Everything that involves Chelsea at the moment is strange, Rich. <laughs> doesn't affect them for this game, but the squad is obviously so big now, I can only actually register three players for the knockout phase of the Champions League, or three <laughs> yeah. new players, I should mm-hmm. say. So there's going to be some of these big players that have come in. They're not going to be allowed to play in the Champions League. It'll be interesting to see who, who he picks. I mean, he's got such a big number to pick from. There, there will be some unhappy names, but you know, at the same time, these young young players are coming, and they know they're coming into a competitive squad. So, you know, to say Potter have a big ask to, to keep them happy, but on, on, at the same time. The players know they're coming into a very, very competitive environment and they need to show their quality in order to get selected, whether it's for Champions League squad or in the Premier League. And even before this January splurge, you know, no team had used more players in the Premier League this season than Chelsea. Uh, There's 29 so far. Um, and they're really struggling to settle on the starting eleven as well. I think you know, they've made 73 changes to their starting 11s um, this season, which is by far more than any other side. I think almost 20 more changes. So we're seeing an issue of consistency. We're seeing an issue with, you know, getting that consistent lineup. And I think once they're able to do that, um, we'll see much improved performances. You know, players can start building relationships with each other on, on the field and little partnerships here and there. But yeah, it'd be, be a tough job to, to get that to happen. Yeah, not to be outdone, Fulham have done their own weird thing at the end of January. Shane Duffy's move to Fulham is made permanent, despite only playing four Premier League minutes so far this season. But what this has done, George, is it's enabled Cedric Suarez to join on loan from Arsenal, a player who likes to cross the ball into the box. He's got the perfect foil there in Mitrovic. Yeah, I mean, it's a a shrewd signing, you have to say. I mean, the Duffy signing is one of the weirdest ones I think we've seen in any window, where an unsuccessful loan in terms of the fact he's barely featured. Uh, I wonder if he needed any persuading because, yeah, he had to, uh, they had to make one of their loans permanent in order to get Suarez in. But, you know, Marco Silva deserves massive credit for just simplifying how to manage Fulham. You look at Fulham when they came up under Scott Parker, and the way that Parker chopped and changed and ended up dropping Mitrovic only after only a couple of weeks of the season. For, for Marco Silva, it is just get as many players on the pitch who can get a ball in to Mitrovic and just get players playing in midfield who can who can break up play, recycle the ball, get it wide again and r- rinse and repeat. And they're very good at doing it. And, and then Willian, you know, a really clever addition, somebody who can do that on the left-hand side, but also offers his own goal throughout, also really tidy in possession. And Suarez is just another string to that bow, somebody who will get on the ball, uh, he'll look to cross from deep, he'll look to overlap and get to the byline and cross from there as well. And you know, football, sometimes we can overcomplicate things. And when you've got a player like Mitrovic, who you know is a very aggressive in the air, wins most of his headers and is an elite finisher with his head, just do whatever you can to get the ball in his head as much as possible. And that's what Silva's doing. And that's what I'm sure Suarez will do as well. We saw we saw in the first game that, um, you know, Fulham did get joy of crosses and, you know, 
In Fulham and Chelsea, you've got a team who are the best crosses of the ball in Fulham against a team who are the worst at defending crosses in, in, in Chelsea. Chelsea have conceded the biggest share, apart from Southampton, from crosses this season. Well, well, see, Mitch, well Fulham have scored the most from crosses this season in, in with, with 11. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that happens again, as you, we saw in the, in the previous fixture, how Fulham got joy of crosses. And, um, yeah, likely we'll see that again, as, as George said really well. Yeah, and they won a few weeks ago. Vira cross and Mitrovic yeah. wasn't even there. So, yeah, that's a valid point to, to look at the crossing stats. Steve Fulham are currently in the dizzy heights of seventh, but are still 40 to one to finish in the top six. Yeah, I think they're overachieving, Dan. I think if you look at their XG against, it's probably the highest in the Premier League. They've conceded 30, and, and the XG probably says, says 40. I think Mitro's been uh, very hot this season. His non penalty XG is very hot as well. He must have missed about 25 penalties in the last three weeks. Um, he's had one shot on target actually this year. So maybe the signs of Mitro cooling down just a little bit. Maybe the, Leno's had a really good season. Yeah, he's goal prevented. He's, 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 he's one of the best in the Premier League. You know, he's, he's, he's not Alisson or Kepa standards, but he's not, he's not far below. So I'm just wondering just a little bit. I mean, let's be honest, their business... At the start of the season, looking back at it now, you're thinking, wow, they've done some really good business there. And let's not forget that Fulham are one of the relegation favourites at the start of the season to go down. They've, they've done extremely well. And it feels a little bit disrespectful to have them at 40 to 1 to finish in the top six. But as far as we're concerned, they're overachieving. Yeah, OK, they're playing well. I can just see them calling just a little bit and maybe finishing mid-table. And let's be honest, Fulham fans would have taken that at the start of the season. And so would Silver. Yeah, brilliant manager, brilliant recruitment as well, and Shane Duffy. So, yeah, well done, Fulham. Next, we'll look ahead to the start of another new era, Everton, as Sean Dyche takes the managerial hot seat. They take on lead leaders, Arsenal, at Goodison Park. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to the Weekend Preview here on the Athletic Football Podcast. Myself, Dan Bardell, joined by George Ellick, Richard Mofa and Steve Freeth. Everton v Arsenal is Saturday lunchtime, 12.30 kickoff, and George Sean Dyche is in. They were looking at Bielsa for a bit. It's ended up being Sean Dyche, obviously two managers that are exactly the same. Is that a good appointment? I think it's a great appointment. I think it's the, the perfect appointment for the squad they've got at their disposal. I think it's a great job for Sean Dyche to get. I think for him to take over a club who not so long ago were able to hire elite managers, Dan, such as Carlo Ancelotti, uh, in their quest to go and uh, qualify for Europe. You know, for Dice to take on a club at their lowest ebb, but ha- clearly have the financial clout in the transfer market, as we saw in the summer, to go out and spend fairly big, who have aspirations to get themselves back into being a top six, top eight club. You know, the potential for what he can do with them 
dwarfs what he was able to do with with the Burnley side that we have to remember he ended up once getting into seventh position at the end of a Premier League season so it's a great job for Dyche um, I think there's a lot of snobbery around him and his management methods I anticipate that he will you know it, it, it will still probably be fairly pragmatic and fairly agricultural but with a better quality of, of technical player at his disposal possibly more effective it's easy to forget as well that plenty of, of really decent strikers have scored a lot of goals under Dyche in the past as well looking at Danny Ings Sam Vokes Ashley Barnes Jay Rodriguez you know he gets a tune out of, out of strikers so for you know we, we talk about simplifying the the method of, of route to goal for Fulham if Dominic Calvert-Lewin can stay fit I have a feeling Sean Dyche will be probably the best thing that's happened in Calvert-Lewin's career um, in terms of turning him into a, a really effective striker, there clearly are, are issues in terms of the strategy. Like if if you are if you are recruiting for a job, and the last two people that you're interviewing are Sean Dyche and Marcelo Bielsa, then something is is clearly wrong. Especially when one of those last two candidates suggests that he should coach the academy till the end of the season. Uh, in my mind, that's probably not the worst idea from Bielsa in terms of long term potential for a club, but. Uh, it shouldn't get that far that he that the one of your key candidates actually has no interest in taking over the job in order to to do the the most pressing job at hand and that's to keep um, Everton up. Not to mention the clear differences in in culture that each would want to create, the different strategies, different formations, the different philosophies, a madness. So it, it does feel to me like maybe Everton have stumbled into the perfect candidate for the job. But I personally am am much more positive about the alignment for what Everton are at this moment in time and the appointment of Sean Dyche compared to the appointment of Lampard compared to the appointment of Ancelotti you know it, it just feels like this is much more of Danny you, you, you scoff but the, the signings that they made under Ancelotti at a time where they were in a position to really go and push forward you, you look at the, the recruitment of Allen you look at the recruitment of, 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 of James it was all just an incredibly short-term, high-spend turnaround, which was never going to lead to sustainable success. Like At least with Dice, you've got someone in the door now who, if things go well, there's no reason why he can't be a manager for, there for the next six, seven, eight years and, and operate a, a proper project that can be sustainable and, and they can have a clear identity throughout who they are. That was never going to be the case under Everton's previous, previous managers, except for maybe Lampard, but there wasn't very much to suggest that he was up to the task of, of doing the job. So... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm excited to see him back in the Premier League. And I think there's an opportunity as well where Everton are pretty much going to be the only side in the in the league who look to play the way they're going to look to play. And I think that can be a, a big benefit as well, where it doesn't matter that you might not have the, the technical advantage of your opposition. If you can execute your game plan better against a side who are going to look to have the ball and play a high line, then that gives you an advantage in in plenty of games. And in fairness, that's when they were last good Yeah, under David Moyes, when they had that identity. It was different to everyone else, but it worked and they were successful. Some part of me though, Rich, I like Sean Dyche. I'll caveat this by, by saying I really like Sean Dyche and I do think it's a good appointment. But in some ways, I don't think it matters who the manager is because we've seen with teams previously, if you're not managed above very well, we've seen Sunderland go down, Villa go down, Leeds go down... It almost doesn't matter who the manager is because you can circle the drain for so long and eventually you'll fall down. And to me, it still feels like even though Dyche is in, that's what's going to happen to Everton. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail in the head there. When a culture around a club is, is as negative as what it is, it, you know, it takes a lot for it to be dragged out. And, you know, for Dyche, you know, he's going to, he has to hit the ground running. There's, there's no doubt about it. As you say, if he's able to raise the spirits around the club, then as you say, you may be able to see an improvement. But you know, you talk about the you know the higher ups and stuff, and we know the mess 
that has been there has been very well documented. We spoke about it on previous podcasts. And as you say, not bringing anyone in, not necessarily to just replace Anthony Gordon. Obviously, he's a big miss. He's not really been playing that well this season. But to just not really bring in reinforcements and try and freshen things up on the pitch, as well as obviously in the dugout, it's, it's, it's a big mistake. And you say, I'm sure some names will come out in, in over the next couple of days of who they've targeted and who they've missed. Is that kind of decision-making... As you say, you can have the best manager in the world, but if you're not getting that support, what what can you do? You know, as, as George said, I think Everton will have to go back to basics, just really be, you know, pragmatic, um, you know, men behind the ball, try and play the counter-attack and try and get a tune out of Dominic Calvert-Lewin. And if, if they're able to do that, especially early doors, then we, we may be able to see an upturn. But things are just looking so bleak at the moment. It's, it's difficult to see where the next win is going to come from and, and, and the positive performance yeah, I mean, as well. It's been a disastrous January for Everton as well. They've lost Anthony Gordon, who we're going to discuss later on in the show. Steve, what's this done for Everton in terms of the markets? Yeah, ordinarily, I think, Dan, I'd have been pushing Everton out for relegation if Sean Dyche would appointed. I, like the rest of the panel, think he's a good appointment and, and, and the right appointment. But it's just the fact that the their rivals have strengthened so much, whereas Everton have, have, have lost the player. Not a key one, but as in he hasn't played a great job this season, got more cards than bookings. Um, he's got more cards than, than goals, I beg your pardon, this season. But we actually cut them from 8 to 13 to 8 to 15 to be relegated. So that's just goes to show the, the sort of job that, you know, Sean Dyche really has on his hands and, and it's going to take a, a lot, you would have think for, for to get that sort of Burnley side that stayed up for, for five seasons. So consistently that, that side, that Burnley side just gave up so many shots yet. There were shots of such low quality that it didn't really matter that he got them into Europe, you know, just incredible. Really. I think it's a, I think it's a good appointment. I think it's the right appointment, but from an odds point of view, we think they're going to be in the championship next season. Yeah, and there's a market for combined points from Sean Dyche's first two games, isn't there? Arsenal and Liverpool, Steve. Yeah, Arsenal at home and and uh, and Liverpool away, of course. <laughs> two two really tough games. So I want the panel's opinion on on how many points you think they'll get combined over those two games. Georgie, one. Okay, nine to four. Okay. Yeah, I think I, I think one as well. One against um, Liverpool. I suppose you don't mind Liverpool. playing Liverpool at the moment. No, exactly. Dan, nil point. Yeah, yeah, nil points. He's uh, he's he's odds on as you'd expect, ten to eleven. So yeah, it's uh, it's not looking good. He, he might get a little bit worse, but he gets better at Goodison Park. I do think the game against Arsenal will be tight, though. I think there'll only be one goal in it. It feels like that's the the. the I think it'll get them organised, won't it? It'll be a plucky performance, but Arsenal will be will be too good for them in the end, and their quality will show through. We've already discussed Arsenal's January at the top end of of the show, but George Georgini is probably the most int- intriguing one. Doesn't really fit in with their transfer policy that they've had. I suppose Trossard doesn't doesn't either. But I was reading a piece from Art de Russia this morning talking about what, why they've done it, and it, and it is justifiable. And they've p- pulled in two players in particular there with big Premier League experience that could be pivotal players in the running. Yeah, it, it is interesting to see Arsenal have had such a clear identity in the transfer market <clears throat> going out and signing two players um, who are a bit older. Um, the Trossard deal especially, you know, paying f- a fair amount of money for a guy who's in his late 20s isn't necessarily how I'd normally expect them to, to operate, but he's looked really lively early on. They, they knew they needed a body in there and he brings that, that quality. He's match fit having played loads. The Jorginho one's really interesting where I can't really see why he would play that much from here till the end of the season. You know, I think in an ideal world, they will stick with having Thomas Partey as being the, the, the man who sits in front of the, the back four. And there's nowhere really that, you know, Jorginho isn't going to play on that that 
left-sided role that, that we see um, Shaka take up where he's kind of playing in that half space and then can drop in next to party if they if they do switch to a two with Odegaard moving into the 10 role Odegaard playing off the right and then often playing as a 10 he obviously can't play there either so in, in an ideal world it feels to me like Jorginho's main minutes are going to come in Europe uh, in the Europa League but just bringing in a guy who has experienced the experience that Jorginho's got into that dressing room now you know somebody who won the Euros not that long ago, who has been part of, you know, who won the Champions League with Chelsea not particularly long ago, basically just a winner, a, a winner into a squad who have players who have certainly haven't won a Premier League anytime soon, haven't won a great deal between them, an incredibly young front line, um, a guy who's one of the best penalty takers in the world, which you have no idea what kind of impact that can make as well, is really smart recruitment. You know, he, he's clearly got that experience, will come in and have a bit of an aura around him in the dressing room. So even if he doesn't play a great deal this season, and we know that Thomas Partey's had his own injury issues at times in the last couple of years, he's a brilliant backup to have, especially when you consider, you know, the players who were there previously. Like if you look at Arsenal's Europa League side before Jorginho came in, it was Elneny and Lokonga. I mean, he is a massive, massive upgrade on that. So it's a really smart signing, regardless of how much he plays, he improves things in terms of depth. And he, uh, and he also brings that winning mentality to the squad as well. I do think it's a better signing than overpaying for Kaiser, yeah, yeah. In, in all honesty. For, for what he'll bring in terms of experience and leadership as well, I, I think it ticks more boxes than the Caicedo transfer. But maybe we'll see Arsenal go back in for him in the summer and they'll add him to the ranks as well. That's Everton against Arsenal. Next, it's Newcastle United against West Ham United. Saturday tea time kickoff there. Steve, Newcastle made their first final since 1999 with a 3-1 aggregate win over Southampton in the week. What's the price on them lifting the Carabao Cup? It's been a while, haven't they, since they've won? Silverware Fairs Cup in 69, the Anglo-Italian Cup in 73, the Texaco Cup in 74 and 75. They also won it, Dan. I've never even heard of the Texaco <laughs> Cup. I don't even know what that is. Albion Albion got to a final once, I'm pretty sure, in the early uh, 70s. Medi- mediocre to, then. Yeah, you'll have to, well, it's, it's, definitely, no, it's definitely no European Cup. No. Um, so they are favourites, but only slightly at even money with Manchester United at four to five. Before that trip to Tranmere, um, way back then at the start of the uh, the competition they were 14 to 1 to do that so 14 to 1 into evens all looking very good for Eddie Herrenco. Yeah Rich Bruno though is missing for this one a real lightning rod for them really in, in the midfield a real game changer someone who since he's come in has just lit up their midfield being without him that that is a big miss. It is because he, he's so keen and integral to the way they play you know he's the one who who, who starts the attacks he, he gets the ball moving you know uh, just love watching him his balance his poise his passing range his shooting everything about him is just a, a fantastic midfielder I love the way he links up very well with Amon as well when Amon cuts in and then it will give him goes and it's proven to be quite profitable this season but I think against West Ham uh, you like to think Newcastle will have enough quality to get over the line uh, Longstaff is in decent form Matty Willock too yep. so I, I think they'll be fine I think you know maybe if they're playing against you know, a top six rival which what you can call them now you might worry but I think against the West Ham side who are in, you know, showing slight upturns but not, not in great form um, you still expect Newcastle to get the job done without him I was going to say I assume it's going to be Joel Linton moving back into the three won't it and then Sam Maxman starting up front well in, in on the left hand side of the three and Sam Maxman's struggled to, to get his, to force his way into the side since coming out back in November and um yeah, we know that when he's on form, he's a, he's not a bad option to have. So it'll be interesting to see if he can take his chance to, to force his way back in. You say it could be St. Maximin, George, but it also could be Anthony Gordon in for 40 million to much derision. What do you think? 
yeah, there's been, especially within the, um, I guess, analytics community, there's been a lot of scoffing about the, the signing of Gordon. And, you know, you can see why clearly in terms of, of actual output, um, he hasn't done enough to justify that price tag. But I think it, it, it's pretty early to, to write him off. And um, when you're a player who's clearly got the raw attributes to be a, a pretty special player that, that Gordon has got, you know, he's, he's very, very tenacious off the ball. I know that um, a lot of opposition fans don't particularly like how easily he goes down. And he's definitely got something on it. I think in terms of a, of a work in progress and a bit of a blank canvas, it, it, it's I'm not going to write him off right now. He's been playing in an incredibly poor Everton side for the last couple of years. So yeah, one of those players who seems to pass the eye test, um, but, but not necessarily the, the underlying numbers test. And, and I'm somebody who places probably more value in the, in the data rather than the numbers rather than the eye test. But at this stage, in the infancy of his career, moving to a club who are going to be unquestionably winning more games than they lose over the next couple of seasons, where he won't be the, the kind of the player that you have to stop uh, as he was at Everton, and he should be given time to develop under a manager in Eddie Howe who has it made much poorer players than Gordon look very, very good at Premier League level. Uh, I think this is one where we just have to wait and see and, and, and he could flourish under him. Yeah, West Ham fans, Steve, livid that Danny Ings and Brazilian centre-back Luizão were the only two additions. Is the lack of quality in the squad an issue? Because let's remember, they spent an awful lot of money in the summer. Yeah, oh yeah, bundles of it. Younger players, I think, came in, didn't they? Um, but it's it's an old squad, let's be honest. It's, it, must, it must be the oldest squad in the Premier League, Dan, and they had that big win against Everton as well, you know, just a few weeks ago after that after that defeat against Wolves. And look at the games that are coming up after the Newcastle game. You've got Chelsea at home and Spurs away, both of those sides, London. They'll be massively up for those games as well. But I think if David Moyes is listening to this, and I know that he does, he'll be pleased to know that they are 6-1 to one to be relegated. So there's a, they're about seventh on the list of our, of our relegation uh, sides that we think will be in trouble. I, some people may think that's value. I know they've bought in Ings, Danny, Dan, as you know, very well, but of course he's not fully fit at the moment. And Declan Rice's future, will he be going in the summer as well? You know, the goalies, old Fabianski's very old, Supel's 30, Ogbonna's 34, Antonio's 32. I'm just going through it now and there are some old players in there. Um, I know David Moyes has overachieved at West Ham for, um, well, obviously last season, but, and, uh, you know, got to a, a Europa League semi-final, didn't he? But it's, uh, it doesn't feel a great season. It doesn't feel a happy place at the moment, West Ham, to me. No, I mean, we talked about Moyes at Everton and what, what they did un- under his stewardship. In the summer, West Ham bought in players that really, to me, aren't David Moyes players at all. And that kind of has taken them away from what made them good in the previous two seasons. So you're right, West Ham not a happy place at the moment. And the Danny Ing signing's a strange one. I don't think he fits in there at all. As good a player as he is and as good a goal scorer as he is. They don't play with two up front. So I just don't see how Danny Ings is, is going to make that much of a difference. This game is, of course, the Kevin Nolan derby. He's West Ham's first team coach now. He played for both Newcastle and West Ham. The trivia question today is, who did he score more goals for? Steve, I'll come to you first. Can I sing I'm in the mood for scoring? The, I think the Nolans sang that in the 70s. You won't have a clue what I'm on about. Most people <laughs> I've heard of the Nolans. What I'm on about, but I just wanted to go, I'm in the mood. For... I know that. Yeah. I... Everyone's <laughs> heard that song. When I say everyone's heard that song, no one's ever heard it sung like that. <laughs> uh, I'll go for uh, Newcastle. Newcastle, George. Yeah, I reckon Newcastle as well. Newcastle, Rich. Um, yeah, I, I always seem to remember Kevin Nolan reading away doing his little chicken celebration at Newcastle. Um, so that's what's in my head. But I'm going to be contrarian. I'm going to go for West Ham. 
Oh, you've done the right thing, Rich, because he scored one more goal for West oh, Ham no. than he did for Newcastle. It's <laughs> 31 for West Ham, wow. and 30 times he did that chicken celebration for Newcastle. So, so well done, Rich. You took, you took the risk. You, yeah. you, you, you moved away from the crowd, and you, you changed your answer, and you have won the quiz this week. Next, we're going to get on to Manchester City as they visit Spurs here on the Weekend Preview. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is the Weekend Preview here on the Athletic Football Podcast. Tottenham against Manchester City is Sunday at 4.30. And one of the stranger signings in recent times, or stranger moves in recent times, which Zhao Cancelo to Bayern. I mean, I was on Sky at the time when that got announced, and mm. my terrible poker face probably summed, summed up what everyone's thoughts of it were. We've heard all the stories since about the falling outs and whatnot, but it's still just this is something that was unthinkable. Even a, even a week ago, let alone six months ago, a year ago, you would never have expected this to happen. No, not at all. I mean, we all know of Jacques and quality, both at right back and, and at left back. But, you know, as as a, as a really interesting report by Sam Lee and Paul Balus on The Athletic at the moment, just kind of talking about that fallout. And we know how Pep likes to have that kind of harmonious squad. I think he has a, a no bad faces policy. Whereas, you know, if you're not playing, you still have to show the right attitude. Look at the Lazaraki, for example, who, who have, who have shown that. Um, and Casella was just the opposite. And it wasn't just, a, it wasn't a big fallout. Um, it's more like a series of little things like being in a bench against Arsenal, being subbed at half time against Chelsea. And he's very vocal in, 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 you know, say, showing his displeasure if he's not playing or if he gets subbed. And I think, you know, as I say, it wasn't a big, one particularly big incident. It was just a series of little things where, you know, Pep Guardiola maybe started to see having an impact in the dressing room and, and thought, you know, we've got to get this player out. I think the bigger surprise was not having a direct replacement to come in for him. Uh, I think we all expected that. And he, he'll be a big miss for the quality that he's shown. But I mean, on the flip side, this season in the World Cup, he's not really been playing that well. You know, defensive lapses, you know, Liverpool game come, comes into mind. And they say if someone's having a negative impact in the dressing room, better to get them out than, than keep them in to, to stink out the place. Yeah, I think that's the big thing, isn't it, George? You know, Cancelo not being replaced because we talk about all these players that they're saying have done well, but none of them play left back. Ake's done a very good job at left back. They've got Gomez <clears> there as well, who's not really done anything of, of note since he joined the club. I do think one positive thing potentially for Manchester City, I do think since Cancelo's come out the team, 
Jack Grealish has come alive a little bit because I think Cancelo kind of got himself into the areas where mm. Jack's so, so effective. So, so there is that. But like Rich says, there isn't really a, a natural left back. I suppose Cancelo wasn't a natural left back, but there isn't a, a real natural left back to play there now. Yeah, we've got to remember that City won the league with Fabian Delph playing left back a couple of years ago. Um, you know, it, he's, he's not there now, George. So in, uh, you know, with with Pep's system, you, you, well, you feel like it's. Um, when one quality player comes out, as you say, another one comes alive. Uh, I, I've been quite surprised how much, not outrage, but surprised there was that Cancelo has moved on. You know, and I, as a player, I when he's on form, I think he's one of the best players to watch in terms of creation from deep. You know, he he, he got an assist on on debut for Bayern on on Wednesday evening, but he's been probably the most out of form elite player in European football since the beginning of the season. He was atrocious. And at the World Cup and lost his place for Portugal. He's, I think it's, is it a goal and two assists? Both assists came in the same game this season. He's looked a complete shadow of, of, of his former self of the player that we, we know. And with Guardiola, we know there isn't much room for, for manoeuvre. We've seen players who are now key players for City, Bernardo Silva, Ilke Gundogan, go very close to leaving the club after small patches of, of, of poor form. And with Cancelo, quite clearly there was a breakdown in relations between him and Pep as he came out of the side. And that was that. He was moved on. I don't think his absence this season will affect City at all. I think maybe part of the reason why City have struggled at times this season has been because of the the, the lack of um, influence from, from Cancelo, who's been such an important player for the last two seasons, but he's offered nothing. And so, yes, if he does well at Bayern, there will be some revisionism over over him moving on, but but he's been a, a, a shadow of what we've seen previously. Before we talk about the hosts, there's a familiar voice here to tell us about Spurs this week. Let's hear from the Athletic Spurs reporter, Tim Spears. Hi guys and hello listeners, hope you're all well. Sorry I can't be with you this week. Uh, it was a very busy sort of last 24, 48 hours for Spurs in the transfer window. High on their priority list was signing a right wing back and a right wing back in the name of Pedro Porro, someone they'd been uh, locked in negotiations for with Sporting for several weeks, with Sporting seemingly moving the goalposts on a number of occasions. In terms of how the deal was structured, it was always going to be around €45 million, Euros, but it was just when those payments came, and uh, Sporting, of course, wanted to sign a replacement as well. Eventually it got done, and yeah, a really a really key arrival for Spurs, who've been looking for a top-level right wing-back. Wing-back's so important in Antonio Conte's formation, of course. So yeah, he's in, Matt Doherty's out, that was a real surprise, certainly in terms of his destination, which is Atletico Madrid. Initially he was going to go there on loan, then Spurs realised they'd cocked up the loan rules, uh, so he eventually uh, has gone on a, on a free transfer, his contract's been uh, terminated by mutual consent, and he goes to Atletico Madrid for the rest of the season, joining his Spurs teammate Sergio Reguillon, who's now on loan, and following in the footsteps, of course, of Kieran Trippier, who made that same move a few years ago, and Doherty sought Trippier's advice on the move. So yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, also interesting was Jed Spence going to Rennes on loan. We always knew that he would head out, but um, yeah, he joins Joe Rodon, who's also at Rennes on loan from Spurs for the rest of the season. And Brian Hill went to Sevilla on loan, which was uh, totally not a surprise. So yeah, interesting um, interesting couple of days for Spurs. And then uh, that continued on Wednesday morning when we found out that Antonio Conte was going to have an operation to uh, remove his gallbladder, which happened yesterday. He's posted on Instagram to say that surgery went well. 
and I think it's unlikely we'll see him in the dugout, certainly uh, for the big game against Man City on Sunday, in which case Christian Stellini, his assistant, who stood in for Spurs' uh, fantastic win away at Marseille in the Champions League when Conte was suspended uh, a few months ago, he'll step in and, of course, we all wish Conte a very quick and speedy recovery. Very polite from Tim at the start, of that, the start of that voice. No, very, no, bad, no, no bad faces on this podcast. Got through a lot there in a short space of time of what's been going on at, at Spurs as well. George Antonio Conte thing, kind of, I feel like because of the, tra- the transfer window being the way it was, it's kind of flown a little bit under the radar. Yeah, it has. I mean, it's it's always hard to know how serious these things are. It's great news that for, for Antonio Conte that the surgery's obviously been okay. It can, from a footballing point of view, football obviously comes come second or third or fourth or whatever when, when it's uh, somebody's health uh, in, in question. Uh, it's clearly not ideal for, for Tottenham um, to not have their manager with them at this stage, but hopefully he's back on the touchline fairly soon and, and obviously we, we all wish him a, a speedy recovery. Yeah, and the way of the Premier League at the moment, Spurs obviously played Manchester City not that long ago, Steve. Is there any lessons learned from that 4-2 reverse? Yeah, don't go turn it up against them. I mean, it's not a dangerous scoreline, let's be honest. But with Manchester City, it seems to be. We saw Crystal Palace earlier in the season. Your boys, I think, in the last season, was it? Or, or, or recently when when you threw away a lead there. And of course, we pay out when a team goes turn it up as well. So we paid out on both teams in this game. I, I seem to remember the game where Spurs caught them cold, didn't they, at the end of the first half. And um, it was bang, bang. And, and they were turning it up. And that's where the Manchester City fans bit of jeering, wasn't there? A bit of booing yeah, as they booing. walked off, mm-hmm. they trudged off. And then obviously <laughs> Pep had his say about the crowd afterwards as well. And it kind of, yeah, obviously Pep had, uh, yeah, he did have a lot to say about that. But I think the, the story is just don't go tune up against Manchester City. Yeah, and Pedro Porro has joined Arnout Danjuma to complete Spurs' January transfer window. Rich, have they finally replaced Kieran Trippier with Porro? I can't. They must have had so many wing backs in between the two, <laughs> two of these. Now I, I won't name them all, but there must have been a few. But yeah, that's probably fair that Kieran Trippier has probably never been efficiently replaced. No, no, it hasn't. And you know, even looking at, at this season, you know, Doherty's not worked out. Emerson Royale's not worked out. Jed Spence's not worked out, even though we know his his potential. And it's a really, really um, big, big signing, really integral signing for Spurs because you know, right wing back is so key to. Antonio Conte system, the way he likes to play. And with the aforementioned players not working out, you, you see a lot of attacks breaking down just when they get the ball out wide, uh, whether to get a crossing or the end product has just not been good enough. Um, Trippier will be hard to replace because, okay, he was maybe unspectacular at times, but he was someone who was always going to give you 7 out of 10 performance. And that level of consistency is so important, especially at the highest level. We know Pedro Porro's quality. He's quick. He's got a really good end product as well. But like I said earlier, uh, with other players, you know, he's got to hit the ground running now because that position is his own. He's got to make it his own. And as you say, it's a really important signing for Spurs, as I said, because maybe in the past where negotiations have been difficult, Spurs have been known to walk away from these things, but they really needed to solve this problem area. As you said, not really solved it since the strip here. And the fact they've done that now, the side just looks a little bit more complete now, especially with Danjuma up front providing uh, more competition too. I think it's a really, really important signing for them and um, we, we should see an instant impact. Yeah, so those are our featured games to look out for this weekend with the full Premier League fixture list looking like this. It's Chelsea v Fulham on Friday night before leaders Arsenal travel to Everton in the early game on Saturday. There are five 3pms on Saturday. Brighton, Bournemouth, Manchester United host Palace, Brentford play Southampton, Liverpool head to Wolves and Villa face Leicester. 
Newcastle v West Ham is at 5.30. And on Sunday, Nottingham Forest take on Leeds at 2 o'clock ahead of Spurs versus Manchester City at 4.30. Rich Manu are without Christian Eriksen until April at the earliest. They have replaced him, but that's, that's a huge miss. It is, um, you know, he's, he's really key uh, to, to the way United like to play and, and try and build from the back. Um, and he's formed a really good relationship with uh, with Casemiro in, in the midfield. And we know Everton Hard doesn't like to make too many changes. You know, we've seen a really consistent lineup now. I think most people could probably name United starting lineup now, which I think is a good thing in terms of the you know the inconsistencies that we've seen in previous seasons at Old Trafford. Um, so, of course, it'll be a big miss. But one thing that Everton Hark, Eric Ten Hag has done really well this season is he's kind of got his style of playing structure in place. Uh, Karl Anker reported on it this morning, um, called it uh, it's automatisms, where you kind of go through repeated, um, you know, almost choreographed routines. So every player knows what's expected of them. And you'd expect, um, you know, Tomine offer to come in and, and and have a decent impact. Of course, you know, what they may lack in the, you know, the passing range and stuff, they'll bring a energy guy or, and we've seen, especially with Fred, his improved performances this season. And um, obviously, you know, my sauce of bits are coming in. Exciting prospect, we know of his quality, you know, great shooting ability, uh, great, great passing as well. So he'll need to get up to speed. But um, uh, oh, it'll be it'll be a big miss, of course. But, you know, United have the players to come in now. And with the structure in place, um, you know, you'd expect United to still maintain the quality that they've shown already. And George Brighton take on Bournemouth this weekend. Will they be the most relieved side that the window's now closed? I know you touched on that earlier. Yeah, I, I guess so. Um, you know, Brighton... <clears throat> I think unlike other clubs, the relief from Brighton is different because Brighton have a price for a player. And if the, if the clubs pay that price, they'll sell that player. You know, if, if Caicedo's price had been met, they'd have sold him, but it wasn't met. So they, so they didn't and they dug their, their, their feet in. He's back training now. So long as there hasn't been any issue reintegrating him, to, him into the squad, there shouldn't be an issue there. But Brighton at, at some point need to try and now and they've done so well to bridge the gap between the bottom you know the relegation area of the Premier League up towards those those European places if they're going to want to hang on to the likes of, of Caicedo of, of McAllister of Matoma they're going to have to convince them that they can achieve their ambitions within football at Brighton and when one of them is a World Cup winner that's going to be quite hard to do so um, yeah I guess they're relieved now but the way they operate means that they know how much they're going to accept for players and if that isn't met then the player isn't going to leave and Steve, this is the game I'm actually most looking forward to this weekend. Nottingham Forest against Leeds. That's a, a real pivotal game down at the bottom. Yeah, very much. I mean, Forest are now fifth favourites down at, at five to two to be relegated. So they have, from the start of the season, they've managed to get some points on the board. And, and, and Leeds United, it seems like an eternity ago where Somerville was scoring at Anfield. There's going to be a little bit of needle in this game. I think more historically than ever, you know, because of the uh, Brian Clough, Forest and Leeds and stuff like that, it's... Uh, be a good throwback, and there's like I think Bamford was he a Forest fan when uh, when he was a kid? He's he's slowly getting he's slowly getting back to form, which is great to see from a Leeds United point of view. I think Robin Cop being suspended, him and Verber have, have, have built we're starting to build a good partnership at the back. Uh, Chris Wood will get a bit of stick, I think. I don't think Leeds fans like the way they left Leeds United as well. So there's a there's a lot of different stories going around, and it's uh, of course three points. We'll we'll see that you know the price of the teams be relegated just. Just on the drift, it's uh, it's a re- it's I think it's one of the most interesting games on the um, on the Premier League uh, coupon this weekend. Yeah, I think you're right, Steve. I think I'm really looking forward to watching this one on on Sunday at two o'clock on the, on the TV. It's a really intriguing fixture. It's your moment to shine now as well, Steve, because we're over to you for the six scores challenge. The six scores challenge. We're still waiting for it to be uh, the million pounds to win. I'm going to start with you, Dan, because 
It's Villa v Leicester, and you know I love going to you for, for Villa games. Yeah. Villa to win 2-1 on their first Saturday 3pm kickoff this season at home. Scandalous, but yeah, Villa will win that 2-1. Oh, you haven't mentioned that before. That is big news. Yeah, OK. Uh, Man United versus Crystal Palace. I'm going to go 2-1 again. 2-1 to Manchester United. Okie dokie. George, are you ready for this? Yeah. Wolves versus Liverpool. 1981, the last time Wolves beat Liverpool at home. Um, Bruce, Gro- Bruce Grobelar made his debut that day. one all. OK. Mm. Newcastle-West Ham. 1-0. 2. Newcastle. Home win. OK. Another clean sheet for Pope. Mm. Forest versus Leeds, Rich. Uh, yeah, I think Forest at home will be, be a really good game. I'm going to go for 2 2. Okay. And finally, Spurs versus Manchester City, the big one. Yeah, I'm um, going to throw a curveball in here. I think Spurs will win 2 1. Uh, City haven't travelled well at Spurs. They haven't won 0 4. Not that it matters. I think they'll still score. We'll see Haaland, of course. But um, yeah, I don't know. I've just got a sneaky feeling that Spurs will, will do a job somehow. So yeah, 2 1 Spurs. Bold shout. Okay, Rich, that's it for the Six Scores Challenge, the free-to-play game. Yeah, right at the end, Rich making sure we've got no chance of winning that million points between <laughs> us. That's it from us here at the Weekend Preview. Chappers is going to be back with you to review it all on Monday. A reminder that if you are not already a subscriber, then go and take advantage of the one ninety nine per month for the first 12 months offer by going to theathletic.com slash football pod. Thanks ever so much for listening and enjoy all the football. The Athletic.